Ahorangi Ta Hirini Moko Mead is one of our greatest educationalists. Raised in Murupara and attending St. Stephen's and Teote College, Sir Hirini Moko Mead would dedicate his life to Māori education. At the vanguard of Mātauranga Māori, beginning with the Te Māori exhibition in 1984, we interview Tahirini Mokumid in the archives carrying the name of his wife, Lady June, and the library which bears his name at the university he founded, Te Wharewānanga Wawanuiārangi. The chief negotiator of the Ngāti Awa claim he is a staunch and fierce advocate for Mātauranga Māori, Māori arts and culture, te reo Māori me ona tikanga. This is his story, Ahorangi Tā Hirini Mokomid on Indigenous 100. E ngai wi tēnā rā katoa a ngai maira. We're here in Fakatane at Te Farewananga Wawanuiārangi in the Sir Hirini Mukomid Library. Te Farepukapuka, e Fakamaharana i ngā mahi a tā Hirini Mukomid a Ahorangi Hirini Mukomid kai takutaha i Ayane. We're here in the archives room, which also bears the name of his wife, Lady June Mead and remembers also Sir Harawira Gardner. And with me now is Distinguished Professor Sir Hirini Mokomid, who I hope doesn't mind me calling him Koroa. Et Koroa. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for allowing us to speak to you today because there is so much to talk to you about. But I wanted to begin by being in this place with you. And the name, as I said, that remembers uh, your wife, Lady June, uh, who, with you, committed so much to Tao Māori, who also co-authored books with you, celebrating Mātauranga Māori. Seeing and hearing and having your name here in this library, a word that comes to mind is legacy. What do you think when people talk about you in that way? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. Uh, I don't know what they think. And I don't know how much they actually know of, of what I have done. And I think even my people here really don't know. And that's because I've, I've lived so long. <laughs> and the ones who did know have gone. They've passed on. And the next generation that's come along um, don't really have the same kind of knowledge uh, of what I've done. They just know all oh, Hikurova then. Uh, he has a bit of mana around here. <laughs> and uh, I'm treated uh, with respect. 
And so I gather from that that uh, the legacy is that they do, some of them do remember uh, what has been done and uh, what I have uh, achieved for the iwi. Uh, and the many battles that I fought. And uh, one could say that, yes, uh, I did walk the talk. I did face up, you know, to the iwi, because different one did ask me, why did you go back and work with the iwi? Mm. And I said, well, because I was in touch, you know, with the elders. I was in touch with them. And uh, when I came back from Canada, uh, there was something going like this, <laughs> out of my head, uh, And my eldest then, like Eduarda, was alive at that time. And all his sisters were still alive. So I had a huge whakapapa uh, uh, backing uh, when I came back. And now Crow Edward, I said, uh, there's a lot of work to be done now that you're here. And uh, as he was the leader of Alfano, he sort of put it very simply, my way, my. And those were heavy, heavy words, hey, ma where mai. But in one sense, I was honored by that. That he thought, and they thought, that I could do it. For instance, returning the whare, matatua whare, they said, ma where mai. And I think they were shrewd enough to know that maybe I could with the education background that I have or that I had at the time that probably I knew enough, knew enough uh, to make it possible. And... uh, I think for me, the strong support that they gave me all the way through, especially the the treaty claim, of uh, course, uh, that was hard work. As everyone else has found, it's hard work. And uh, maintaining the unity of your people is the most difficult part of it all. Um, because that process seems to find <laughs> uh, weaknesses in our systems. And then all sorts of things begin to happen. And some we almost fall apart in the process. Whereas I think here in Ngātiawa we did not fall apart. In fact, the opposite uh, was happening. Mainly because the 
elderly group were fairly united, I think, through the Ringatu Church. That bound them, bound them together. So the Rangataiki end and the Pakatane end were all Ringatu. Uh, even though at, at this end, uh, I think they were mainly Katurika. And at the other end, uh, I think they were Presbyterian uh, mostly and Anglican. But there were enough of the elders who were in the Ringatu Church uh, that provided a basis for unifying the iwi. And one of my queer said they, they as, as the Ringatu Church tried, they tried their best to unify Ngātiawa. And she said they couldn't do it. And so it was back to Mauema. <laughs> and I said to them, uh, why do you think I can do it? And I think the answer was, you come with, because you have no baggage. It was, I'd come from Canada. I just come back from Canada. And... Uh, didn't have all the local um, raru raru on my back, weren't part of any of it, uh, so I was clear of all the factions. Maybe, you know, that, that might have been um, one of the reasons why I was able to come in and uh, unite them all. But that, that also requires, at the Koroa, requires a certain skill set. Yes. That, that doesn't potentially come from a life in Canada or indeed your international experience in education. Although a lot of the foundational parts of that are due to upbringing and whānau and being nurtured by grandparents and schooling. Were you aware in your younger days if I can put it that way, that there was a sense of obligation or, ne or expectation being placed upon you that would eventually lead to these things that we're talking about now? No. Never. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> never. And uh, I became a whāngai, and I was whāngai'd out. And I grew up in the Ngāti Manawa, not, not here, uh, with the distant uncle, an auntie and uncle, and there were two of us, uh, one of her uncles and I, and we're both whāngai to the same whānau. And the amazing thing about that, I mean, we both found it hard, it was hard, um, because the family we, we, we were with and like all the families of Ngāti Manawa at that time, all poor, all very poor. But he ended up chairman of the Tauraba Trust Board, and I ended up chairman of the Rūrunangao Ngātiawa. And I said to him, you know, that's, that's something strange. Here we are, we were thrown out. <laughs> 
and you on our two Horangi side went there. And I came back here to Ngatiawa and we both ended up in leadership positions. Mm. And Buddha uh, Gardner was also a Whangai. And he said, there's probably the Whangai experience that's done that. It's put us on our, on our metal. Yeah. I also get a sense of, um, of the hand of, I don't know how you feel about it when people talk like this, but the hand of tupuna at play. Oh, there's a lot, of that, a lot yeah. of that at play, yes. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for it, actually. Uh, once we got into the Waitangi tribunal process, uh, I met regularly with, with the Kamatua. Just regularly, every time we struck some problem, call all the Kamatua together. And the Kamatua then um, were different from the ones now. They were still hooked in, you know, to to the older ways. What does it mean? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a generational shift. And I think with each generation, they take away something. Uh, we never quite know what it is that they took away. But I would say the Wairua Māori, they may have been more colonized than us now, but they had this wairua of whanaungatanga. They were more cohesive as a hano. And I think uh, poverty caused that. And that was a response and that whanau uh, had to. They had to work together to survive. And... Uh, this generation of elders uh, actually showed up very clearly what colonization had done. These are the ones Wapakake Karita Mohyukitero. Karita Mohyukinachikang. It seemed to me that generation after Edward and them showed up the, the consequences of all of the policies that had been uh, well, promulgated and forced upon Māori. And detrimental yes. to Māori. And here they were, wanting to become Matua, but didn't have the real the Fanang, uh, the family just breaking up. No. Good. Going to town, going somewhere else. And you left here with just a little core of them uh, trying to hold uh, the mana of their marae or, or their whanau. So it's a, just a, it's a generational shift. I think the next one coming up is stronger than the present one. Really? Oh yes, you can you can see the signs. 
Ia nui ia kei ngā mea ko kou mōhio kei ki te rau. Ngā tamariki, kei te mōhio. Engari ko rātau mātua, ka hari te tino mōhio, ko e tehi kei te mōhio. But that generation of mātua, though, present one, I think it's less culturally prepared than the kids that are coming up now. Is that why you're still doing what you're doing now? Do you see yourself as having a role or a responsibility? And even now, you're writing a book at 96, Mātauranga Māori Lecture Series, led by you. Do you see yourself as having a responsibility to continue to keep working? Because you are, and again, I don't know how you feel about me classifying it in this way, you are the last of that generation. Uh, and yes, I, re- I realise that. <laughs> that all died off. <laughs> and I'm still here. Mm. And it's been a marvellous experience being still here. Mm. And that's seeing the developments and looking at the generation coming up. I mean, I see the Rangatahi around here now that just far more talented. Seems to me, you know, far more talented. And maybe because of the new technologies now has helped them um, to be just smarter than um, the older ones. Uh, well, smarter than their parents, even. Some of them are too smart, man. <laughs> Present company included, perhaps. Um, <laughs> I know what you mean, um, and I think you skillfully and diplomatically avoided the, the intent of the question, <laughs> which was your role, because it, it amazes me that um, that you still are doing what you're doing and the way in which you are doing it, as robust as you are doing it, um, as industrious as you are at this age. And I, I wonder what, what continues to motivate and invigorate that. Is it that sense of duty and responsibility or is it something else? Um, well, I've always been always been interested in, in education. What, why was that? Why did that start? Well, I don't know. That was the first job I ever got into was school teaching. And from school teaching, I thought, well, is this it for me and for us? By then I was married in June. And that's, both, we both agreed, no, there's something else we're going to go for. And so from primary school, we went into tertiary education meaning we had upskilled ourselves. And uh, when I went overseas to, to get my doctorate and uh, met up with Whatarangi Winiata, who was already there. And uh, later on, yeah, I came back after gaining that uh, PhD and then, and then I went back again. 
went back to Canada because Whatarangi and uh, Francie were still there. <laughs> and uh, we set up a fairly close uh, relationship. And, and uh, he was the first to come back <clears throat> to Bic. And then I followed him and ended up at Bic. Mm. <laughs> and then the next thing, um, while we were both uh, away in Canada, we often had sessions trying to plan, you know, uh, what the future of Māori might be. Um, because we often said, by being in Canada, we could actually see more clearly that something had to be done. Especially him with with his people, um, he did a bit, a bit of research on one of his uh, holiday breaks. Came home, he said he could count on the fingers of one hand the real speakers. And Karanga, uh, <laughs> yes, and you couldn't even do the five five fingers. <laughs> And so he began planning that Whakatipuranga Ruamano there in Canada. And we would often have these long discussions about how to proceed and how to make change happen. And Whatarangi uh, was more of a sort of getting involved, you know, straight away, get into it. And I was just saying to him, well, I wouldn't uh, quite do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go a bit uh, slower, <laughs> do it more incrementally, a bit at a time. And uh, anyway, he went his way and got straight into it when he came back <laughs> from Canada. And I think that was one of the most successful um, programs or raising the cultural capability yes. of the whole tribe. Just amazing. Yeah. Um, the consequences of it, the real, just rose. And you now have a lot of Rokoa people who can speak. Uh. Uh, but I did find out that um, a lot of... Uh, Rokawa did not follow, did not join them in that program. I said, well, well that's sort of typical. <laughs> There's always some who pull back, you know. And uh, I said, well, they were just more colonized, you know, than, than the others. <laughs> they'll come up, they'll join, just wait, they'll join. But the, the, the idea for Te Whareiwanawa when we Arangi, was that born whilst you were in Canada and then developed throughout your experience as Professor of Māori Studies at Victoria University? No, no, no did not. Uh, I didn't even think of it when I was helping uh, Patarangi do his and, and get uh, that one going. What it did do, though, however, it gave me the idea of a one 
and um, just watching him and taking part in some of the the work he was doing. Um, but I, I think I'm quite honest in saying that I did, I was not doing it because I wanted to to form one. That just hadn't occurred to me. Until really? It, no. Until years afterwards, I come back, and we're in the middle of of our treaty claim. I'm looking around; everyone it's in grief, and um, sort of troubled by all this new information that was coming up, hmm. and just watching all of that and and the effect of it. And I thought then we had to do something to change that, you know, just to lift the morale of the people and to be more forward-thinking. And that's when the idea came to me, that uh, we should develop our own Whanewananga. But the idea of Whanewananga, but your idea wasn't that you would lead the evolution and development of the Whanewananga. Is that what you felt at the time? Well, I happened then to be leading the tribe. I was already yes. leading the tribe yeah. at that time. And then I thought, that's what it'll do. So we called, um, um, no, we didn't call a meeting to get our AGM. And everyone knows that AGM. It was at Pukeko, at their marae when I raised the issue and said to the, we, we needed to establish our Pariwana. And many of them said, well, what's that? So I had to explain. <laughs> oh. And uh, they said, and do we have any money to do that? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> How are we going to get money to do a Whanewana? And uh, our Whanewana was poor. Uh, no, our, our Rudel mm. was absolutely poor at that time. We didn't own anything. We were just going on hope. Anyway, I said to them, if you all agree that this is what we should do, the money will come. And I looked at several of our queer, especially we <laughs> rolling their eyes <laughs> in total disbelief. <laughs> anyway, I left the idea, just left it alone uh, for a good five years. Then I was going on to the next few years, and then raised it again. And this time they said, okay, let's put it in our development plan. Mm -hmm. So it went in the development plan, and from then on, it was a matter of how, how we're going to do it. Uh, so we did something, I think, that 
know what they were thought of at the, at the time. We passed our own enabling act as a runala. We said we want to establish Varavanana. I said, well, how do you do that? I said, well, we can do it. We'll establish it. But we'll put through an act that we pass. So we did. We had this enabling act. And uh, said, right. It was voted in. And away we go. And where we went. We also established an uh, uh, enabling committee of three to make it happen. And then from then, it just rolled along and rolled along to what you see now. I know you talked about, and I think this is the way that potentially you see your work as, as being, um, we well, use the word incremental. Yeah. A lot of what you've done is actually quite radical. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> well, the main idea, you had to get the idea in. Yeah, mm. yeah well, things, these things always begin with hope. It's the spark that, yes. that gets, things, gets things going. Um, and, uh, for example, when we talk about things like Mātauranga Māori, I, I was about eight years old. I don't know if you remember. You probably don't because I was... Uh, well, I was a hotetu. But you were the professor of Māori studies at uh, Victoria University. Mm -hmm. And there were people like um, uh, Con was in the kitchen and Maka Jones. Yes, they're all there. They were all there. And um, my mother was doing tohu Māori tonga. And um, at that stage, people used to talk about Māori studies using the phrase taha Māori. That's right. That was a very popular word at that time. Ah, not that I knew what that meant at the time, but I only really used to hear, hear Taha Māori. We now use Mātauranga Māori. Mm. What is Mātauranga Māori? Ah, yes, we come to the basic question. <laughs> um, well, we have to go back a bit. I think Mātauranga Māori is a legacy. It's a rare <coughs> sort of taonga that just in recent years um, we began to see it again because the colonizing forces of the country um, had determined that uh, no one in New Zealand, as it turned out, I thought it was just anti-Maori, <clears throat> but it turned out nobody, no, the teaching system was not to be used to teach anything Maori to anybody, to any child. It was prevented, prohibited in Maori schools, and as it happened, by 
just not permitting uh, permitting it and allowing it in general schools. Park our kids didn't know anything either. But um, it was the damage done down to the rail. The leadership system, uh, the knowledge system, those, the religious system, all of those were immediately targeted uh, by the the settlers who came here and the missionaries, them combined. And so through suppression, uh, policies of suppression, Mataranga Māori disappeared, hmm. just went out. Along with it, te reo. Along with it, all our kōrero about Rangi and Papa, all our, um, our karakia, mostly, slipped away, except in certain places, far away from uh, Pākehā influence, they survived. Mm. Places like um, parts of uh, Ngāti Pro, way away, way out. And Tūho uh, is one of them, and several places up north, they still spoke the real. They still knew their mother, their tikonga. They still knew about Rangi and Papa. And there were still one or two people who knew Karakia. And it was during Te Māori in the 1984, um, when we discovered that there were about that many, and and you were even stretched to get that many tohunga who actually knew Karakia Tuturu and could foot it with Henare Tupangai. At that time, he was the guru and actually a very learned old man who knew, knew his Karakia and was keen to, to share it. And so the whole lot of stuff, you know, was suppressed. And then I think once the Treaty of Waitangi Act was passed, things began, you know, to move. And then all the treaty claims began to happen and all this information began coming back. And I think that's when Matauranga Māori re-emerged. I think first the reo, the reo re-emerged, yes. then Matauranga Māori. And the amazing thing about Matauranga Māori was that not only did Māori you know, seize it 
when it did come back. But Parkhurst loved it. They too wanted it. And so you have Māori trying to gain control for their own cultural development. And this time, waves of Pākehā suddenly interested in Mātauranga Māori. Mm-hmm. So every government department now has a, has a policy on Mātauranga Māori. And we're in the position now that we're not quite sure as Māori whether we own this tawa that is actually a legacy handed down to us from generations who passed on. I've heard you talk about this before. Um, because it seems ridiculous that Māori cannot or do not own Mātauranga Māori. But I've heard you do presentations and lectures where you've traced, for want of a better way of putting it, the whakapapa mm. of ownership of Mātauranga Māori, which eventually ends up in the hands of the crown. Yep. Which seems absolutely nonsensical to me and wrong. <laughs> and I don't have a question <laughs> but uh, having heard you say that uh, do you see again the responsibility of putting that right and being a part of a movement to ensure that the ownership of Mātauranga Māori stays in Mātauranga in Māori hands well I do cover that, that in, in the book uh, that I've written uh, that we do have to address it. We have to do something about it. And uh, one way was to revive Māori Congress. And this time, and don't be um, too hooked on the idea that we have to do it by ourselves. We can't. Just go to the government and say, we want money to revive Māori Congress so that it can have a part to play in protecting us and also in protecting um, the reo, protecting Mātauranga Māori and being not only the protector but the voice within the nation um, to let people know that you know, Mataranga Māori belongs in the first place, you know, to Māori. Do, do you think that will occur, given politically where New Zealand is at currently, where we have some political representatives who are even, in, who are even questioning not just the relevance but the place of a constitutional doc- document like the Tiriti, where we hear politicians talking about issues like co-governance uh, in the way that they do, which in their view shouldn't exist. Do you think that might happen? 
Well, I do, but I, th I think that we can do something about it. Um, my view, you know, all of those people who who are bucking uh, the direction in which things are going are simply idiots. They're in the way. And I think the movement will keep going, despite the idiots. Um, because there are now a, a lot of Pākehā people who are joining us in this movement. Yeah. When you look at all the uh, Kapaha groups in our primary schools, some of them absolutely all Pākehā. No, no Māori, huh? <laughs> Just no Māori. But they're in it. And their parents are supporting them. So I think that there's a movement that is underway now. And I think the idiots can't stop it. They might try. Yeah. Yeah. In in the lecture series there's some there's some interesting topics that I wanted to touch on. Um one in particular towards the end. It's called Te Reo Te Aroha, the language of emotions. Um as a doctoral student, uh my misconception or mis uh, misalignment, perhaps, or one again trying to think of a better phrase to put it. My misapprehension potentially as a as a student uh, undertaking our doctoral thesis is that education and study and research is objective, and therefore, again, my misconception was that emotions don't have a part to play in research. That one should be uh, an objective researcher, and therefore. What does emotion have to do with that journey? So when I hear uh, kaupapa like the language of emotion as it relates to education, in particular mātauranga Māori, how and why are we talking in the way we do about mātauranga Māori and include things like language of emotion when the traditional notion is that education is dispassionate and not emotional and about the facts and answering questions. Well, that's because we have, um, uh, well, we, I mean, in the Western knowledge system, um, we often take a subject and we abstract it from social reality and we study it and we analyze it, and we learn from it. And then we just continue to do that as a, a modus operandi, you know, for a lot of uh, academic people. In reality, that's all being done within the social context. People do have emotions. Even your academics. <laughs> the reality is the emotional part is always there. And um, I think in in law, and you can see it uh, in the legal system, where the legal minds, you know, abstract to mm. that. Just look at it. And then it's when it comes to sentencing, 
of Māori, they suddenly realised, hello, <laughs> there's a bit more about this, you know, that there's actually a social context to this whole thing. The whanaungatanga involved, all these values. So it, it's a way, it's it what has become a practice eh, in, in uh, Western knowledge systems of abstracting things away from social reality. And then when I do a lecture <laughs> like that, uh, people are amazed. I said, well, that's us, you know. We do have emotions. I mean, even the Prime Minister <laughs> has got emotions, and sometimes you see them. You see the emotion. Yeah. yeah. And that, we made that the last one. And actually, that was the first one to be done because I did it after the after COVID. Mm. And I thought, oh, here's a, a lecture. This just shows that we academics are aware. Yeah. But there are a lot of things that come out of there. Uh, for example, uh, we've been changing the meanings of some of our words. Uh, so, manawa now has become heart. But if you look up the dictionary, it doesn't say that. Yes. Yeah, and it goes back to, yeah, <laughs> that's where it goes. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's primary meaning, meaning is bowels. Its next meaning is the bowels of the earth. And I said, now what does that mean? It's got to mean the bowels of our mother, Papatūnuku. And again, what does that mean? It means that the depth of sorrow is so deep that we liken it to how uh, Papa Tuanuku felt when the separation occurred. And it's a it's sort of the deepest level of grief is there. But what have we done today? Mana is heart. And we think all our emotions are in the heart. And that lecture proves that to be not <laughs> not correct. Do, but do you, we have changed. Do, do you think that Maturanga Māori, do you see Maturanga Māori at its essence, the, the difference between Maturanga Māori and what we, could, we would call potentially traditional academic research? Knowledge. <clears throat> Is that emotion? is that you can't take any aspect of Mātauranga Māori out of a context related to community and people and whānau and land and sky, taihau, because emotion is deeply attached to it because of the impact that it has on communities and people. Yes. Well, I think uh, we're more inclined to pull everything together. Yeah. And you carry things along, you know, with you. 
as you're doing your studies, well, all these other things come in as well. Yeah, your ticker comes in, your values come in. Uh, in fact, your very beliefs in your mind are at work. And uh, if you are a firm believer in uh, Rangian Papa, and you believe in Tagaroa, you believe in Tane, that's going to color your work. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of just other things that I wanted to ask you. Um, one is um, relating to where you are at this stage in your life now. And as you continue uh, to contribute, do you find us as a people, do we Māori, more receptive to the kaupapa like Mātauranga Māori that you are talking about and the research that you are doing, or less receptive to this type of research? Because well, I think actually the evidence around here, around uh, the whole of uh, Mātātua, um, is that all the marae are on the move and uh, they're all having wāranga on all sorts of topics. And then they find, oh, they've got to do a bit of research. <laughs> so, you know, it's all coming together. And uh, it's just happening out here. It's quite common that you hear somebody is, is arranging a wānanga on some aspect of Mātauranga Māori. Maybe Mōtātea. And lots of uh, kapahaka things going on, and thousands of people engaged in that. Uh, that we now have uh, papa moko. We're not dealing with individual moko anymore. We're dealing with whole groups of them. Sometimes whole families. <laughs> so it's gathering uh, momentum. And uh, those ones that are kapa or papa moko, they go into the reasons why you're doing it, the knowledge in the matauranga. And, and so, yeah, I think we do carry everything along. And it's really the context also in which we yeah. do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you answered the question in that way. Because the next immediate question that follows on from that is, so can you see the individual impact you have made in that continuing revolution, revitalization, reemergence of those kinds of things? Because I think those are deeply connect connected. The individual impact that you have made is a part of what we see now happening in lots of marae, by the way, not just in Mātātua, although Mātātua, as you know, stretches north. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> but the individual impact that you've had on that continuing evolution, revolution, re-emergence, revitalization. Again, uh, what's the intent of your question? <laughs> The intent of my question is to try and get you to realise that the role that you have played in this is 
almost infinitesimal the impact that has had on so many people. And what you have done has created this groundswell of movement that you talked about in that previous answer. And I just wanted if you to know if you recognise that and what you think about it. Well, um, I get a, a read uh, about that um, from different individuals I meet uh, who will make comments about that. And might say to me, you know, I've read your book. I said, which one? <laughs> You're taking our book. Oh, yes. And uh, he says, I keep it by, by my... I my bed. <laughs> Why do you do that? <laughs> and uh, he just left it at that. And uh, when that f book first came out, had lots of letters from uh, from women um, writing in and saying to me that they were pleased. Uh, that there is now a book they can actually go and read uh, because they're on their own. They don't know the, who their kaumatu are. And, and so the book helps them. And, and all right, well, in that way, I, I get a, a sense you know, that I'm doing a bit of good somewhere. Uh, and occasionally, you know, I, I hear... Uh, among our people here, saying, oh, saying to me, yeah, it wasn't for you. Uh, if you weren't here, we wouldn't have got that party. And I would just say, yeah, I think they're probably right there, that somebody had to fight the fight. And it was a long, long fight to get that done. And... What enabled us in the end to get it was the Tribunal Act. Mm. Because what had happened before that um, was every time we raised it, uh, the Minister of the Crown, they said, you're too late. There's that thing uh, about the legal system. Yes. You have to yes. uh, put your complaint in at a certain time and if, if you miss out they won't consider it at all. Statute of limitations. Yes. That. Let's quote that at us. But uh, with the tribunal act and the tribunal process we got over it. And so the minister Doug Graham at the time said uh, the government clearly slipped up on this and the government will see that you get your house back. So in the end, it all became easy <laughs> um, once you had the right people in the right place. Yeah. But that was a long battle uh, to get the photo back. And uh, a difficult one because people, museum people were scared that we let that happen. Others are going to do the same thing. 
which of course they did, eh? But it's wrong. It's not happening now. The whole kinturanga, yeah. The whole kinturanga. So I have uh, recognized that part of what I have done, really, is to open the door. You don't find yourself sometimes just going as you drive past my hotel to it. Good stuff, Sid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't do that. Okay. Some of us would if we'd done that. Had <laughs> <laughs> ourselves on the back. <laughs> no, when I do drive past, I look at it, pleased to see it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or we might get the guy. Yeah, really pleased to see it. Oh, I, I want to close by by um. Because she sits up there, mm. late in June. Oh yeah, in the photo up there, and um, your work continues on with your with your whanau, Kenodi, distinguished professor in the and Aroha, world leader in Indigenous rights, and everything else that she does, and a source advocate for Indigenous communities across the world, and your mokupuna, and mokupuna tuarua. There are lots of instances where ma where people talk about the impact of one's life work on their family. Kids and grandkids talk about the fact that, well, dad wasn't home or he was committed to the iwi and gave his life to the iwi and their impacts on whānau. But, um, you know, your whānau unit um, with, with Lady June, it seems worked together. A lot. Um, and I, I think that also says a lot about about you. Not as Sir Hinini Mukomi, distinguished professor Hinini Mukomi, but as a husband and a papa and a kōro. And I think it's a great exem exemplar and example. Well, I, yeah, I think it says a lot more about her. Really? I think it does, uh, and the fact that uh, she was always there and always backing me, always supporting, um, and um, you know, most of what I was able to do, I could not have done you know, without her. And if I slacked up on the job, you know, I'd get a whittle from her, hey. <laughs> She could be quite forceful when she wanted to. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> and even this place, you know, she had a lot to do with this place. And that's why I'm pleased. There's a room here that's called the Lady June Room because um, my father played a big role in getting this place established. And their role was all underpaid voluntary role. Others, you know, refused to come and help if they weren't paid. So in the end, you know, you, it's your own whānau, your own relations who will come aboard and help you get over the initial stages. And then once it's up and running, People forget all about, you know, who did the hard work to get it up. 
Yeah, Lyndon Graham played a huge role. And out of her dead, she used to drive up with her kids to lecture here. No pay. <laughs> We're too poor. <laughs> they were far too poor. And those women who sort of rolled their eyes, they go, wow, where's the money? Where's the money? All that I could say was, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> and of course, eventually he did. Mm. Yeah, so I think for a lot of ventures, uh, people just don't realize the, the impact on the family and the sacrifices that a family has to make. Yes. Uh, her, yeah, very often, and to live on her own while I'm over here with, with the iwi. And so I try my best to include and bring her here. In the end, people thought she was not the other one. Yes, I'm very grateful to the role that she played in um, helping me achieve all of these things that, that I did achieve. And uh, at one time, I did think that I did it all by myself. <laughs> you were quickly dissuaded or dis uh, you know, disenfranchised from their view, I, I suspect, if you made it public. <laughs> and then uh, one day I woke up and said, Actually, that's not true in no way. Thank you for giving us your time so generously. I, I just felt that it was right to mention um, Lady June. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, I was pleased to do that. And um, But then now our lecture series, eh, we're hoping that um, you're going to play a part in this. Um, I, I've been asked to, <laughs> to do something with it. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and as a result of um, you uh, uh, talking about the history of the Farewanawa when we are pleading poverty and the rolling eyes of the queer, I feel I should participate without expecting any fee for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to do so as a part of my contribution to the Farewanawa that has looked after me on my doctoral study. Um, I look forward to the next 96 years. <laughs> <laughs>